SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. You know, we live to eat nice foods and sleep with girls. What's wrong with earning some money, too? And uh, Alex Miller. Hey, hey, how's it going? Great. And uh, this time around, we're talking about Jingi Naki Tatakai Hiroshima Shitohen, also known as Deadly Fight in Hiroshima, Hiroshima Deathmatch. Hiroshima's uh, Drunk Uncle, whatever you want to call this. <laughs> the the second film in the original five-part series of the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. And um, th- this poster they have on Wikipedia for it, it's directed by Kenji Fukasaku, I should mention. Uh, but this poster is quite uh, classy, more classy than I would expect for a gangster picture. It shows a gun kind of wrapped in almost looks like an envelope or a piece of paper. And then you see kind of uh, a wide kind of bird's eye view of these men with their uh, kind of mug shots next to them. Yeah, I think that was, um, I mentioned it on the last episode about like the revisionist um, thing about the whole series and that like the the cloth represents kind of like what they would put like a, um, the cloth they'd put around like a, like a sword you'd use to commit seppuku with. And I wasn't uh, sure right. what movie it was. And it turns out it's this one. So we're not too far off on the chronology there. Very good. So, um, Thrasher, what are some initial thoughts you had about this movie? I I was thrilled to go back into this world. Uh, I I loved the sort of continuation of this very chaotic story. Uh, although, strangely enough, this this is a bloodier film than the previous film, and yet mm-hmm. I couldn't help thinking that this is a more this, the violence in this film is more sanitized. And I don't mean sanitized as in any less graphic, but it's more matter of fact. It is almost clinical the way the way violence happens in this film and the way it's displayed. And, and right off the bat, you, uh, I noticed that when people when people die and we get that death date coming up on the screen, we don't get that same musical sting. It is absent from this film until the end. And those static shots of the dead bodies just makes me feel like I'm looking at photos from a coroner's report. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah no, that's... Oops, sorry, you go. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, th- I think that's a good point. I also think this is, I, I would call this like a, like a Gaiden, like a side story almost. It, it's a more intimate story. I thought than, than the first one. And, uh, and I like getting to to be in this world uh, with a character that's kind of um, more more on the ground level, I guess, more of an outsider, an outsider in a different way. Uh, and how he gets involved with with the yakuza is is different from the the main character in the first film. 
And well, they they keep everything really street level because in, in this one, our mm-hmm. protagonist is essentially a a two bit thug who becomes a hitman, right. but he's not necessarily good at being a hitman so much as he <laughs> is just willing to do a dirty job. Right, and I think that's um one of the film's strengths is that um like so many other Yakuza films from Kenji Fukasaku, again, he's focusing on the little man. You know, in Yamanaka, the main character that kind of gets brought into the main narrative of the film, he's very much another, you know, kind of like orphan of the war era. He's um, just a nameless, young, hot-blooded youth. And um, again, you know, I guess like Japan had really like lax uh, sentencing because he goes and like messes up like six dudes and then they're just kind of back out of prison again. (laughs) Um, But again, um it focuses on this kind of like, uh, like you said, he's not very good at what he does, but he's willing to do it. So that kind of puts um, an interesting emphasis on him. And um, I think the story here is a lot less, um, I don't want to say convoluted and that's a bad thing, but it's uh, got this more like notion of a uh, romantic fatalism to it. And I think it's one of the fascinating chapters in the series, even though it's very much a step away from um Shozo Hirono's um, narrative that was so prevalent, obviously, in the first one. Right. That's a good point. Um, I realized my video is off. Let me turn it on. Oh, hey <laughs> uh, listeners at home, turn on your video now, too. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm so short, I got to put the camera down. Ah, shit. Yeah, this is good for this is good radio right here. What we are okay. seeing is comedy gold. That's right. <laughs> Out of focus, stubby fingers. All right. Um, yeah. With, <laughs> with with this film, it just watching it, it was just really. Uh, I think the character is is sort of sympathetic, even though like he's kind of pathetic, and I think that's something that, that in the beginning, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, it's almost like if uh, Oliver Twist became an assassin or something, but he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's um he's a very wide-eyed um he's got a, he's great at this like you know this kind of big eyeball acting and um the actor uh um uh kenya uh kitaoji is um he would appear i think in the final uh episode because you they recycle cast members a lot in this series um uh for instance like um like the guy who played um uh, Tatsuya Mimiya from the first film. I think he comes back in the third and fourth ones just because whatever. Anyway, he comes back in the fifth one, but he's a great actor. He's got that he's very, you know, wide-eyed, intense face type um, type type of acting style. And he really kind of captures that, like, almost like naivete, like when he's... Um, I guess to backtrack a little bit, we should probably talk about the cast of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Buta Sugawara is still in it, but he's kind of a supporting player. And in this, you've got um, Sonny Chiba... Um, the Street Fighter himself, who's actually credited as uh, Shinichi Chiba, and Miko Kaji, who's another huge deal in Japanese cinema, coming off of uh, films like Blind Woman's Curse, um, Wandering Ginza Butterfly, the Female Prisoner 701, the Stray Cat Rock series. So she was kind of a, a pretty big deal at this point, especially at Toy Studios. Um, so seeing her in this kind of like domesticated role as a war widow is really fascinating because she's always kind of this you know, larger than life. She is Lady Snowblood, you know what I mean? She's the stoic badass, you know, assassin type. And seeing her in the, the Yakuza papers, this is kind of, you know, War Widow is pretty fascinating. 
I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the first film, you know, was it's set in post-war Japan, but this film more than the first feels very, very grounded in the post-war experience, if only because we keep referring back to her husband, who's, you know, referred to as a war hero, which of course mm-hmm. meant he fought for Imperial Japan. Uh, and, and then more importantly, we learned halfway through he was a kamikaze pilot. Right. Uh, he he died very intentionally uh, in the line of duty, and that speaks to the fatalism throughout this movie. I mean, there are mul- there are multiple characters who are contemplating suicide, who want to die in a blaze of glory, fighting right. for their gang or their or their brothers. It really does a good job of reinforcing that theme, and I think that also speaks to the to the tragedy of Yamanaka because when his relationship with her starts. There's that such an endearing scene where he's pretending to wrestle with uh, her daughter, and the daughter like beats him, and and it, it's in that moment you realize, oh, he would be such a good father if right. they could mm-hmm. all just cast off these these outdated traditions and the whole and their connections to the yakuza. They would be a perfect couple, and they would be perfect parents to this to this child. Yeah, and it makes it it makes you feel his loss. Uh, so much uh when, when when he finally reaches his inevitable end yeah and i think this uh one of the things that makes one of this film one of my favorites in the series even though it's such a jump from the original narrative with um uh shows hirono um but the thing is, is that you get such like a rich story with the yamanaka love you know interest with miko kaji and um being the boss's uh i believe niece and uh yes. And the whole uh, fatalism through the her being a widow of a kamikaze pilot. And also, like, something that's kind of a narrative through line is that Yamanaka's gun is, um, you know, it's a big, you know, dirty, hairy-ass revolver. And you kind of, in then, you know, uh, throughout his hits, like his first hit, it really lingers on it. You know, he blows the guy away. And then you're kind of stuck there with him and that weird, like, lonely aura of, like, how horrible homicide is. And then that appears later on when he does the other stage shit that is uh, that Morocco sets up. And then you see that again much later on. And the gun kind of takes on the symbolic characteristic as a, almost like um, almost like the, like you would a samurai sword as you would. Um, you know, it's like the weapon's an extension of you and it'll kind of be part of your own demise and the pension of uh, self-sacrifice like a, like a samurai would almost. I'm glad you mentioned that about the gun, especially that first hit he has to do and, and how it lingers on that and his reaction to doing the hit. It reminded me very much of a series uh, Thrasher and I talked about on uh, this show recently, Death Wish. Oh, yeah. That, that In that first one, right, with uh, Charles Bronson and the gun and how he like vomits after killing that first oh, yeah. guy. It's uh, something it's you don't... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a rough scene. It's something you don't often notice, and uh, you get that sort of humanism in there. And uh, also, in some ways, I mean, after the war, the Japanese people were at a loss, at a, at a hole. They they were they were a great empire, and they had the emperor, and it had a, a full fledged uh, army and air force, and all these things. And then they they lost and had to do a lot of uh, rebuilding and and soul searching. And you have a lot of lost, angry men. And what do they do? They form gangs. Mm-hmm. The, the yakuza right, is born out of that, even though it has its roots in uh, uh, feudal Japan, in, in some ways, but. It, yeah, I think that just that the setting of, of when that is is such a such an important thing, as Thrasher said, and, and that, yeah, it's, it's more of a focus on the film. And that this movie has, I would say, sort of a, if not a smaller amount of characters, it certainly feels that way. It's a more streamlined narrative 
that yeah, I, I think I think you I think the emotions work perhaps a bit better in this film than in the first one, when it's so much stuff happening constantly. It's a bit uh, well entertaining. It's a bit overwhelming. It's like wait, who said who said what for how many jelly beans again? Yeah, exactly. Well, like, well it's not the... stretched out over the same period of time. I believe this one covers true, true. only about yeah. five years, as right, opposed yeah. to the sure. over twenty in the first film. Right, which in the series is is very consolidated. You know, five years is nothing. Um, and also, I think um, at first I kind of thought that like the the consolidation of uh, Bunta Siguara's character as, as shows Verona, I was like, is this a shorthand? And I don't think it is because I think also this guy is like you know at this point in the series has murdered like three people, and it, it says in the title cards like uh, shows Verona, um, or the narration says uh, he killed some guy named Doy. And then, like, in the last film, the murder of Doi, the boss, is, like, a climactic bullet point, mm. you know. And then this one is kind of like a little, you know, underdote mentioned by the narrator, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of funny. Like, oh, yeah, that was Doi. That was last movie. You know, we've moved on to more things than that. <laughs> but you can also see that, like, when Yamanaka's in prison, Hirono's kind of looking out for him in the same way that Wakasugi was in the first film. That he's kind of being a little more of a mentor. He, he sneaks in, he gives him some food, and you know he's kind of being a little fatherly in a way. Like he's kind of seen himself in that in that position. Oh, I'm wondering if you, if you might be able to confirm this to me, uh, confirm something for me. So, uh, is it is it uh, Mur is it uh, Muraoka? Is is the uh... The guy who carries around the boken and is always uh, always really brash and causing trouble. Do I have the name of that character right? Uh, Muraoka's the the she is he's um Miko Kanchi's uncle who forbids a relationship between Yamanaka. Who who's the fellow with the boken then? The boken, the boken, the boken, the boken. What's a boken? The the big wooden sword. Oh, are you thinking of Sunny Chiba? Oh no, that's it. That's what I'm thinking. Yes, yeah. Sunny Chiba. He's got the glasses uh, and, and the the Hawaiian yeah, shirt and everything. Otomo. Yeah, so so it, it just it just occurred to me. I have seen that character time and time again, and I'm trying to figure out if this movie is the origin for that type, or it's kind of a fly off the handle, too cool for school guy who always right. wears a floppy hat, Hawaiian shirt, baggy patterned pants, and always carries around something he can thwack people with, whether it's a boat and a fan. Yeah, always yeah, and always yeah. over the shoulder. Right. And he's always this just is is the Sorry. earliest depiction I've ever seen of that type of character. Does it come from this film, or was that the type of gangster that, that would have been in Japan at the time? I mean, you know, I can't think of anything that would predate this, and this is also... So, like, Sunny Chiba had done a couple films with Kinji Fukasaku in the early 60s, um, the Hep Cat and the Funky Hat films, and um, they're, they're fine, but, um, you know, he's, he's a baby in those, and then... Sunny Chiba would do all these other films, and he was still, like I said in the credits, referred to as Shinichi Chiba. Um, and I think that maybe he might have coined it, because in the whole film, he's a very brash, cocky, loud, arrogant, you know, he's always sitting with his legs spread and, you know... Grabbing uh, his crotch. Yeah, grabbing his crotch <laughs> and with the glasses and the loud shirt and the thing over his shoulder, you know, he's a, he's a very cocky, brash, belligerent fellow. Um, so maybe it started there. I mean, I... I Trying to think of uh, someone else where it could have come from, but that maybe that's it. Yeah, I just I just felt like I was watching a little bit of anime and manga history being born uh, watching yeah. this film. 
Yeah, no, I, you know, he's a little hammy. In hindsight, he's very hammy, but it works though. It really does. In the whole spirit of the, in the whole spirit of the episode, um, he's very hammy, very over the top, very overstated. Um, no matter what, who's he's sharing the scene with, they're almost dwarfed by his energy. Like, well, he clearly fancies himself as larger than life, but wants everyone around him to know that he is larger than life. Oh yeah, he's like the Kanye West of, of Yak. <laughs> <laughs> More like the Kanye East of Yakuza. Ah, but da 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 boy. Wanted to like crash a gong there to complete it. But. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the um the presence of Sonichiba and um and Miko Kashi for me always made this film stand out a lot more. Um mm. not that the other films in the Yakuza papers are lacking in terms of the cast. They're they always have a very strong cast. But I also like that the inciting incident that brings Hirono back into the fold is Yamamori's wife again. <laughs> is that she goes to his, like, I think he's got a scrapyard or something like that. And he's like, oh, my husband's too vain to ask you, but I'll ask you if you can, you know, watch over this guy for me. And then the the he, he puts her off and then the incident where he um, is fed dog meat um, kind of puts oh, a, yeah. gives him a yeah perspective. Um not pleasant, but there's a very like there's a good presence of uh, of, of black humor there. Where he's trying to feed the dog. <laughs> the... He, he feeds the dog, and it plays like a, a dog like howling sound effect that doesn't yeah. match up with the dog's mouth. I mean, it could have been like a Smokey and the Bandit joke or something. But yeah, God, <laughs> yeah. That, that whole scene. Oh, eat eat up, boss. We got this great. We bought this great meat for yeah. you. And when the dog won't eat it, he's like it. <laughs> clicks oh the dog won't eat touch it because it's dog meat right. where did you buy this yeah. meat and, and then, then and then he still has the meat in his mouth and the expression on his face it's a it's a good bit of of levity and it's like the guys tried they tried right. to get him meat and they're they're poor and all this stuff and uh what, really bad and he yeah. doesn't even spit it out he he swallows Mm-mm. it and washes it down with sake to, to, exactly, yeah. and, and swishes his mouth out <laughs> to get rid the of mouth. the taste he's, he's not gonna <laughs> let the protein go to waste no that that is i mean that that right there is just it's kind of how much cruelty is contained with this film because even before then they make a comment about how there's so many stray dogs in the city they would be yeah. better if they went to business as dog catchers and we even see two people chasing around and harassing a dog right and and, and the whole time I'm like oh and then, of course, they cut to the meat sizzling. I'm like, oh, well, that's mm. got to be a fake out. They can't yep, possibly. Right. They wouldn't do that. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I did actually think that was dog meat. And I was correct. And it, I was just reminded of I used to have a, a coworker that was Vietnamese. And it, um, we got to talking. I, I didn't bring it up, certainly. But yeah, uh, she, her family was poor and they would eat dog meat sometimes. And they would they said it tasted like barbecue. But at the same time, her family had a pet dog. Yeah. And uh, and to reckon both of those, I mean, there's people with pet cows that eat steak or whatever, or right. or pet bees that eat honey. Although that's not quite the same thing. Not quite. But... Yeah, you don't eat oh, the bees. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Walking down the alleyway, and um, the, I think Corona says something like, um, "He's like, oh, uh, I hope these dogs don't think we're dog catchers or something." And then his his sidekicks are kind of like, <laughs> "Yeah, why would they think that?" You know, <laughs> it's like, oh Jesus. <laughs> But yeah, not even the dogs get out of this movie unscathed. Exactly. No one wins. But yeah, the um the story's got uh, I think it's got a really good uh trajectory to it. You get a little recap of the first film, which is 
kind of funny because there's um it doesn't have a lot of connection to the first movie and then uh it gets going with yamanaka you know going to prison coming back out and then he meets up with miko kashi and that kind of you know endears him a little bit to the muroka family and um there's kind of like this own beef between the otomos and the, and the Marocas. and um but you still get that like great narration you get the the title cards and stuff like that it gives it this great documentary feel and um, again, it almost reminds you of a Scorsese picture in the way that it integrates a lot of different footage and musical cues and um, title cards and stuff like that. It keeps uh, it has a very uh, propulsive momentum, which I think is something that um, Fukusaku maintains throughout this this series as well as the rest of his career. It was also very intimate. I mean, the the camera so often is so close and feels so wedged into the scene where it's observing things. It almost is like you're looking at, at footage that was captured live as, as events were happening. Yeah. And even though there's a lot of handheld camera and it's up close, uh, just like in the last film, the editing is not spastic, which is which is nice. I mean, you can. It, does it make it difficult to get a sense of geography when the camera is that close and a little bit shaky? Sure, but they're not cutting like every, you know, tenth of a second. Yeah, they do hold on to a scene for a while, like um, when um, when the uh, uh, Sunny Chiba's Otomo character storms the Miraka, um, I, I guess uh, you know, building. And they're doing something with a priest. I don't really understand what they're doing. I thought maybe they were tattooing or something. But, I, think, uh, I think they were tattooing because yeah. somebody makes a reference to being marked. And we do see, I believe we do see somebody like working a design onto somebody's yeah. back. But um, like the violence in that, like you brought up earlier, Thrasher, it's very, it's very, um, you know, graphic, but it's also very disorienting. Like it's, you kind of can't tell who's harming who and who's actually winning and, you know, what the uh, tactical advantage is. It's just a very much a very sloppy, messy hodgepodge of, of violence. And I think it's tantamount, it's not tantamount, but uh, conducive with the series and its overall um, aesthetic of, you know, that, that violence is very um, unpleasant. <laughs> well, it's violence without, without any kind of elaborate choreography to the point where I do have to wonder if in some of the scenes, the action was, was semi improvised. Like, yeah. like, for, like later on, later on in the film when they've got the, they got the, the snitch on the boat and they're just oh, swinging him around and grabbing him by the lapels. I kept waiting for his shirt to just accidentally get torn up because they were right. treating him so roughly. It looked like the, it looked like the actor was really in peril. Yeah, and that's another thing, too. Like, in the first movie, you really, you feel like things hurt in this movie, you know? You see a lot of writhing around and screaming, and, you know, like, you know, it doesn't matter how tough you are when someone comes blazing through your house with a with a shotgun and a pistol or something. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna scream and yell and grab at anything around you. And um, there's a scene where I think um, someone grabs, like, a tatami mat and a mattress, and they're trying to, like, you know, just kind of, like, suppress them with it you know it, it's like very like a very desperate scene seeing how these guys are just like oh fuck it you know throw something at them <laughs> you know suppress these guys in some way or another and it very much is a uh, very much decalamorizes again the, the 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 conquest of violence in these movies and within the gangland infrastructure matt yes um just overall, I, I'm just so fascinated with this movie and its uh, 
even though it's part of the first world as that first one, that it's the more limited scope, I think gives it a bit more of a heart. Yeah, the um, the love story between um, Yamanaka and um, I keep referring to her as Miko Kaji, her character, I think, is uh, Yatsuo. Anyhow, Miko Kaji, um, you know, it's a very there's a there's a really sweet scene where they're like walking down the street together. You know, like he's smoking a cigarette and she's walking around and like the daughter's like playing with a plane or something like that. And it's like a very tender scene. And with a lot of these movies, um, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of these movies, like the women are like very subordinate to the male characters. They're usually like, you know, prostitutes or wives or that, you know. Um, so seeing like a very fleshed out, you know, woman in these films is, is kind of um, it's kind of a first, honestly. Um and Miko Kaji carries it because she's a terrific actress. She's a great performer with a terrific range. And, um, you know, you see a lot of, you know, it's very odd to see, like, you know, Sonny Chiba, the, the stoic street fighter, being this, like, hammy kind of over-the-top villain. And then you have the, you know, stoic badass Miko Kaji being this very, you know, kind of meek and, um, you know, um, you know down-to-earth type of, uh, you know, widow type. And then, you know, you have this other up and up and youngcomer, um, the Yamanaka character. It's a really it's a very interesting narrative and it's a very curious direction to take the series in because, you know, the star of the first Yakuza papers is Bunta Sugawara's character, is Hirono. And in this he's very much like a relegated to a supporting character, maybe even like a glorified cameo in certain respects. Um so it's a really interesting direction to take the series in. And it was still very successful. So, um, Thrasher, overall, is this a movie that you would uh, recommend? You think, or I would say definitely. It's it's a it's certainly a worthy successor to the first film. Uh, the story is very engaging. The performances are amazing. I can't say enough about the uh, about the performances. And and despite my comments about the violence feeling clinical and sanitized, Lots of blood, and it's it is thick blood that stains, which puts it so far ahead. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's 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 not afraid to have the blood look and feel like real blood, and that, that's very important to me. I think you do. I think you do a disservice to violence when when you make blood just transparent, wet goop that flies around. <laughs> Well, I think another thing that's interesting is that, um, like, the first time um, uh, the the Otomo character raids the Meraki compound, <clears throat> and that um, a lot of guys are shirtless, they don't have, you know, uh, fabric-tied squibs under. And I think a thing that Fukasaku did was that running on lower-budget productions, instead of having blood squibs, you would have um, the actors walk around with baggies or condoms with um, with paint or blood in them. So someone gets shot and you writhe around and then you, you'd squeeze the blood pack in your oh, chest. Yeah. And then you just kind of roll around like, ah, you know, and it's a very effective thing because it doesn't give you enough time to linger on it. Like if you're a John Woo or a say in Peckinpah with the, you know, exploding charges in your, in your clothing. So it's almost like more graphic in that that doesn't have that like kind of magical pyrotechnic element to it. Um, and I think that's a really good effect to, to maintain in the movies. Well, it's the sleight of hand that gives you that kind of how did they do that feel? Right. <laughs> it's the yeah, it's the sleight of hand that it makes it not. I mean, it's bloody, but it's not overdone. I, I you said you talked about the squibs. I was reminded of uh, 
in the Godfather, um, the first one where, where Sonny gets shot at that booth, it was a record number of squibs they ever put in a person. Oh, yeah. And, Sonny Chiba's in that, too? Well, uh, <laughs> Sonny Corleone. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, that was a good one. But um, when they put James Caan up in all the squibs, like, they had never tested it on a person before, and they just did it, and that, and, like... He didn't know if he was going to die or get... He might have got bruised from it, I think, just yeah. because of how many they set off all at once. But that one, it's sort of overwrought and melodramatic, and the violence here feels more intense and more real, both from the camera work and, and from those blood effects like uh, like you both just described. Yeah, it's so, a fascinating way they did it. And um, mm-hmm. the, the torture scene where um, Sonny Chiba takes the two guys out, it's it's pretty brutal. He hangs them up. And then, you know, blows him away. He does a target practice, you know, what he says. And then, you know, he's got the guy with a shotgun, the guy with the rifle. And, you know, it, it's pretty rough stuff. And they, they hang on to it for a while. It's like they don't give you a very easy way out. And um, I do also like that these films are, again, very much based in Hiroshima and Curry City. And, um, again, it, it's a testament to the, 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 the trials that happened in the post-war climate in japan after the the bombs went off and what have you and um and there's another recurring theme where a lot of the gang elders like the otomo boss and the murakawa boss have um you know they're dressed in ceremonial or i guess traditional japanese clothing and you know they're the most shifty of the bunch they're the most you know deceitful um you know yeah exactly And, and, and it's tantamount to this distrust of the war generation this um, apprehension that you have of the older generation of people that sent a lot of people out to die. And it's uh, it's an ongoing thread throughout uh, Fukusaka's uh, of cinema, you know. Well, they did a good job making Hiroshima just seem like a pl- the place where chaos finds a home. Mm-hmm. And th- then the the irony of it all is that the the Yakuza are really trying to keep it that way. There's even that, that great scene where they're talking about how, well, we're not going to let city councilmen and police in, in, in this ward. <laughs> Unless, of course, they're in our pocket, but right. then they won't do anything, so it's it's fine. Our sponsor on SequelCast 2 and Friends today is Podcorn. Let's talk a little bit about them. Hi, this is Matt bradley Shirky, host of the SequelCast 2 and Friends podcast, and I just want to tell you about a, a real fun personal experience I had using Podcorn. Podcorn, it's a unique online marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities ranging from host read ads to topical discussions and interview segments and uh so why would this be interesting well this is a podcast right sequel has two it's a podcast and if you're listening to it i bet you have an idea for a podcast yourself and uh and when you get to making one or maybe you already have one you you really need to think about getting uh getting a sponsor because podcasting is a hobby you know it's it's not cheap any any money you can get to wet the beak a little as a thrasher likes to say it uh, would help greatly. And so with Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all size, shapes, and sizes can uh, browse and choose opportunities on the platform, set their own rates, really easy to use. You don't have to give up any rights to your podcast. And uh, Podcorn supports you there every step of the way. In fact, initially, I was unsure if uh, this podcast was like a big enough one to even be on their platform. And I got a response right away from their uh technical support really nice really uh, we had a good sort of conversation clearing up any confusion i had with them and i'm sure uh, they would do the same to you they just want to give podcasters transparency and creative freedom and i think and that is easy to use you're not 
going blindly to a site, emailing them and going, oh, hey, hey, sir, hey, miss, can I go and uh, uh, would you like to sponsor my podcast? Uh, you, you know, if you do that, no place is going to get back to you, especially if you don't have that much of an audience. But, you know, Podcorn, they take, uh, they're very open. They want to help you out. So uh, I would highly recommend them. So you can click the link in the show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities for your podcast today. Thanks. And uh, now we go back to our... What I also like, too, is that you see the um, you can actually see more of the hierarchy within the police infrastructure is that you see like um, Maraca and Otomo talking, talking to, you know, police detectives and stuff being like, hey, we can't let this happen or, you know, you have to give somebody up. So it, it gives you an understanding that like their reach is very much more wide reaching than before, that they're growing and they're getting better at what they're doing. Which would come to come to um, which would come to pass in the later films in the series, um, and again, like you were saying, Thrasher, in the last episode, that these guys are good at like kind of good at making money in semi-legitimate ways. They have um, the boat racing things and the bike racing, you know, the gambling parlors and stuff, and they just have rival, you know, thugs just blowing shit up. Like they blow up a bathroom for the sake of blowing up a bathroom in the beginning oh yeah it's it is just very arbitrary and stupid in so many ways and it's just like uh, again it's like this aimless generation of 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 street thugs just stirring the pot probably because they don't have anything else better to do well that's that's they even say about that after the after the the two guys set off the dynamite uh in the restroom mm-hmm. where like half half of the bosses are like, you know, this, this could start a, a gang war in the streets. And the others are like, they're drunk kids being yeah. dumb. It's like, well, they can't <laughs> be dumb on our racetrack. Like, it's, it's, it, it is fascinating to see, see such a broad range of characters and responses. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's awesome. And, um, yeah, the, uh, the very disorienting violence and, um, I remember the the scenes after Yamanaka whacks somebody. Um, he does this like almost like this little whistle, which is like kind of it's a little creepy and it almost feels like something that Quentin Tarantino would appropriate later on. Um, you know, obviously with the Kill Bill movies, um, which is also attributed to the British movie, I believe, uh, Twisted Nerve. I think the, the thing, the melody. Yeah, that melody. Thank you, and. Um, but yeah, the um, it's just funny because it keeps in mind the Yamamori um, thread in this. It's a very like you know, it's very much pushed to the back burner, and it's um, but it's a terrific film. It almost feels like a standalone sequel in that you know this world of the you know the the intertwining alliances that started with the first movie, and that this could just be a separate narrative from the rest of the series. Um, but and yet they're planting the seeds for more, and you know what we'll see in Proxy War. Well, this stands alone very well. You you yeah. could watch this and appreciate it without having seen the first film. Yeah, and you get the nice little uh, recap in the beginning too, so <laughs> that would help. So the the climax, where uh, where you know Yamanaka you know pays pays one uh, one last visit to Uehara. Uh, and he gets spotted, and so the whole neighborhood gets evacuated. Everything is on lockdown, 
and he's just hiding he's just hiding in various apartments and just kind of doing things to quietly waste time and keep yeah. himself occupied while the police and the other gangsters try to work out like how they're going to they're going to deal with him and you know and it lit later leads to that realization where he figures well if he's not going to get out alive anyway he's just going to take his own life and there is uh, and towards the end he finds this bowl, and I could not tell whether the bowl contained rice or salt. Yeah. But there's just this protracted scene where he's sort of anointing the gun with whatever's in the the bowl and packing it in there and putting yeah. in his last bullet. And, and it kind of because like if that's rice, it, it's a perfect sort of echo of certain Shinto practices that involve right. venerating the dead and passing on a bowl, leaving out a bowl of rice for the spirits of the departed. But if it's salt, then it speaks to purification and absolution. And I think back to sumo tournaments where before the tournament begins, mm. uh, someone always purifies the ring with rock salt. Right. And, and I wish I knew what it was, but I feel like it, it either way it works perfectly within the themes of this movie. And I'm glad you brought that up because I've like struggled with this because I remember I've looked it up so many times over the years. I'm like the significance of this. I'm like, is it sand? Is it salt? Is it rice? And um, and I can't find anything. And I think it's just um, like just the the nature of the scene. You do really linger on it for for such a long time, and it's a very painful scene. Um, and you really do feel the like the immensity of the manhunt. Like the the film grain even gets like the film stock even gets grainier. You know, when they're when they're doing the manhunt, like it's very verite, yes. documentary-esque, you know. Yeah, certain colors get washed out and the green is kind of yeah. pushed forward on the three color film stock. Yeah, it's very, very gritty and um and it really just kind of gives you like um it really reinforces the the um ritualistic nature of suicide and, and self sacrifice that would be consistent with um I guess with uh with with Japanese culture and, and the Yakuza infrastructure. And then going back to just more more cultural intonations of of self sacrifice in terms of um, you know duty and honor and whatever you want to call it, um, but it's very disturbing and and kind of upsetting because it really does linger on it. You get that title card after he offs himself, um, and it's a difficult moment and it's very drawn out, but I think it's very effectively drawn out. And, and it contrasts so well with afterwards where we where we see the funeral and. And it might as it might as well be a celebration because there's clearly some business dealings going on. But oh, yeah. everyone across the criminal underworld is just talking about, oh, what a good guy he oh, is! Yeah. Oh, if only we had some more young men like him. Oh, he right. he took his own life rather than have any of his brothers put in danger and and exactly. save my niece from humiliation. And it's, it's, it's wow! So it just, it's that that's there's some, something just so so grim that, that in a to an extent at least as far as everyone's concerned the best thing he could possibly do with his life is end it mm -hmm. it's so frustrating and also like when hirono's there he's like oh like you kind of see this look on his face he's like i've been here before and i don't like it yeah. <laughs> you know given the, the wrap-up of the last movie and um even yamamori is like he's like you know he he shot himself instead of giving up his boss or his own guy he's like i wish i had someone like that on my team and you can see Hirono is kind of like, like, fuck you. You had me last time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's 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 endlessly frustrating um, the way these guys talk about, you know, everyone. I think anyone who's ever lost anyone can almost relate to that in a way. Um, the transparency of people's behavior at a funeral. Um, 
But yeah, it's um, and just the way Yamanaka is played throughout it, you know, when he's basically reclaimed as um, you know, you know, a, a, a partner to ya- uh, Yasuka, his niece and stuff like that. It's it's very frustrating, and again, it's very consistent with the themes of of you know the shifty bosses who you just cannot trust. It's very, very, uh, very distressing, and also good, good dramatic stuff. No, oh, very good. I think we uh, covered quite a lot about the film. So, uh, I, I, I would give it a sequel. Yes, I think you have a lot going on here, a lot to chew on, a more focused story, and. Um, Curious to see how it fits in with later films in the series. If it's sort of a an interesting kind of one shot, as you'd say in the comic book world, or <laughs> if it if it ties in uh, in different ways to the later films. Curious to see where it goes from here. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing it's a sequel. Yes, from you then. Ah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. I'm going to be in agreement on that one. <laughs> You name I don't it. feel like being contrarian today. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, very good. Um, so, gosh, I can't... Did we do pitch a sequel last time? I can't remember. We, we did, and we probably we should do it this time, too. We should do it this time, of course. Um, okay, if I was doing the pitch a sequel, I would uh, go to the end of the film where uh, Yamanaka is cornered by the police and he's about to shoot himself. And all of a sudden, this little angel, this little fairy pops out of nowhere and goes, no, don't do it, (laughs) and rewinds time uh, until just before that sort of uh, climactic scene, and he doesn't kill himself. So it's like, what if he didn't kill himself? But ironically, at the end, it'll end in the same way, where he has no choice but to kill himself again. (laughs) And, And the audience will be lectured by this magical fairy that will say... Oh, see, if you try to mess with time and fate, it'll just catch up with you at the end. Oh, it'll make the guy from the end of Psycho. Like, there was two Yamanakas. Th- that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, just I have to go minute, play like... the owl in Hero Quest. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it'll just be a, a, a lecture, a lecture to the audience. And, uh, and, and at the very end, the fairy would look at, straight at the camera and say, Well, viewer, who, what, what would you do in this situation? Ooh. That's a and, question uh, I put to you, and you, but, and, and you. And you. Like the madness. Oh, boy. Yep. So. <laughs> what would you call that one? Uh, uh, battles without honor and humanity, or are they? <laughs> question mark. Oh. Question mark. Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> A funny thing happened on the way to the gambling parlor. (laughs) On my way to the pachinko bar. (laughs) Or, pardon me, but your wakazashi is in my torso. (laughs) (laughs) So, Thrasher, what's yours? All right, so mine, uh, I am fascinated by Otomo and his little gang of roustabouts, such as the shotgun guy who wears his bandolier of shotgun shells like a scarf. And the double pistols guy, and the guy with the pipes. Uh, like, they each have a unique weapon, and they each 
dress in like their own variation of Otomo's flashy style. Like they each carry over one of his forms of dress. They stand out so much. I want to do a movie just about them. And it's going to be a comedy of errors mm. that basically is going to run parallel with this movie where it's all about them just being a bunch of punks uh, out of high school, fumbling their way into the Yakuza because they essentially match well with Otomo's style and are constantly getting in over their head um, uh, getting in over their head as they run into these violent situations and cause just as much trouble for their own gang as they do for rival gangs. And there'll be a hilarious scene, and Sony Chiba will show up and have a few cameos. There'll be a hilarious scene where he gives them all their gimmick. It's like, no, you're not, it's, it's going to be the whole, like, you're going to be Mr. Pink, only you're going to be shotgun guy. Why? Because you're loud. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be pipe guy. Because I got a pipe and someone's got to use it. Um, <laughs> And it, it's it's going to be it is going to be very humorous. The music, uh, uh, whenever they get into trouble, the music will be uh, "Lust for Life" by Iggy Pop, but we'll get it covered in Japanese by a Japanese artist. Uh, and it's gonna it's gonna end with all of them getting each other killed uh, <laughs> by sort of flying by basically getting into a whole rumble in a house. They're all gonna massacring a whole other gang. They're all gonna turn a corner at the same time and open fire. And only realize too late that they've just killed all of the other members of their gang. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll call that uh, Battles Without uh, uh, Humor or Hilarity. <laughs> Bad yeah. Magazine, cut me a check. <laughs> Love it. And uh, yours, Alex. Well, uh, I thought about this because usually when we do um, pitch a sequel, I don't have anything prepared. So I thought about this for a little bit. So it turns out it's either rice or salt that Yamanaka loads his gun with. Mm. Turned out to be ceremonial. So what he blows his brains out with turns out to be ceremonial salt blessed by a Taoist priest. And then he comes back as a zombie and exacts revenge on all the Yakuza bosses. Takes Miko Kaji as a zombie bride, so you get a bride of Frankenstein a la Yakuza zombie thing. And then they take everyone else on. However, Sunny Chiba is also a zombie too. Comes back as a zombie street fighter. They duke it out. And what you have is Yamanaki Agogo Street Fighter Showdown, Volume 1, The Requickening. <laughs> and. Very, very good. <laughs> How about that? Can't have enough of that. So, on to what you're watching. Uh, I watched something that was terrible, and I watched it for the second time. <laughs> uh, I, I had a friend over, and I had to put it on for him, and he made me turn it off after 20 minutes. <laughs> this has been streaming on the Amazon Prime, and uh, I thought this would never be available because of the music rights. I'm talking about the 51-minute Paul Lind Halloween special. Oh, no. I kiss. Yes, the one with Kiss. <laughs> and not only does it have Kiss, it has Margaret Hamilton, who plays the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz in a scene, and uh, Billy Hayes as Witchy Poo from H&R Puffin Stuff. Oh, nice. Uh, Tim Conway is in a few different scenes. As Thrasher mentioned, it's probably <laughs> most infamous for Kiss uh, performing a, a, a number in there. Donnie Marie Osmond make a cameo. A young Betty White is in here. And Billy Barty plays a uh, plays a butler, so I, I can't say this is a good special, and it's a it's a tough <laughs> sit. But it, it's just so bizarre, and uh, you know, every time they try to give Paul Lind a joke and cut to his close up and his forced smile, it just seems like he really can't stand to do another line on this. He, he just seems to be in contempt 
the entire special. Like, I, you can't. Well, I mean, and the first, you know, the the gimmick of the plot is that he has uh, three wishes, uh, it, and the first wish is is the best number in my opinion. He becomes a trucker named Big Red, who has bright red hair and bright red chest hair, and and it's when the CB uh, radios and the truckers was a big thing, like the old song Con- Convoy. Yeah, I was gonna say, this, did this come out when Convoy was big? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably, and uh, it is just a. A ridiculous, ridiculous sequence, and the whole thing's ridiculous. I, I dare you to to get through it or just make it through the first fifteen minutes. It seems to have very little to do with uh, Halloween, <laughs> despite the witches in the beginning. Um, it, it's a seventy variety show special in every sense of the word. Well, hey, by the standards of seventies variety shows, though, it is top notch. Oh yeah. Oh, you've seen it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, double bill with that and the Star Wars Holiday Special. What do you say? Well, Bruce Valanche wrote both of those, so... Yep. yep. That's definitely the first thing I thought of when you said... Um, when you started getting into the details of it, I thought of the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special. <laughs> well, Bruce Valanche, a little while back, was interviewed on the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast, and they That's asked him episode. about... It isn't yeah. it, and they asked him about the Star Wars Holiday Special, and he was asking George Lucas, like, what noise do Wookiees make when they fuck and all these things, and <laughs> and George Lucas wouldn't give an answer, but he was he had to sign off on what the overall plot was of the story, and <laughs> even though he has the famous quote, "I wish I would smash every copy with the mallet," that's something you routinely <laughs> find on YouTube and on the convention circuit at, at bootlegs. That's so, all. Oh yeah. To this day, um, Alex, what's something you've been watching? So um, this has kind of uh, reignited my love affair with uh, 70s Yakuza stuff. So like a million years ago, I, I ordered this uh, bootleg DVD called uh, Kogarashi Manjiro, starring Punta Sugawara. Mm. And he plays this kind of like um, more classical here. Yakuza dude who would, you know, he was like a little wolf dude. He would never, you know, ally with anybody. He would just kind of go from house to house, gamble, and then do his own thing. And what happened was that he... Um, he made friends with some, he was sworn brothers with some dude, and then they go off into some fight. And then his buddy, who he fought with, um, confessed to murdering a, a police constable. But his uh, mother was dying or something like that, so he said he'd go to the prison colony for him. And then uh, once his mother passed away, the dude would confess, and then Punta Sugawara would get out of it. The dude never did it, it was a big conspiracy, and then um, there was a big revenge plot. And then there was a second movie that I hadn't seen until like a couple month a month ago. And um, it was fascinating because it's a series I haven't picked up since, uh, you know, uh, over a decade ago. And um, it's a good classical era revisionist Yakuza series um, called uh, The Secrets of Manjiro's Birth. It was really fascinating. And also I've been rewatching some old um, uh, Japanese um, samurai shows like uh, The Mute Samurai, which stars uh, Wakiyama Tomisaburo, who's uh, Shintaro Katsu's brother, who is the guy that played uh, Satoichi. In the original oh. series. Yeah. Great. Uh, Thrasher? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stink the place up a little bit. Uh, I Getting back in touch with, with like my old viewing habits of the 90s, I've been revisiting some old uh, cheesy movies. So I watched the Brink Stevens classic, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, which was a staple of USA's Up All Night uh, back, back in the day. Nice. And uh, did it, was it everything you hoped for? Everything that you remember, remembered it to be? It, it, it's really weird because like it, it, it fit 
it was it rested perfectly exactly between my memories of the film and my expectations for what the film would be as an adult uh and so in in a sense uh, like it's it's bad as all get out but it's honest in its badness <laughs> i still found it very entertaining brink stevens is is very very good uh Ken uh, Ken Dixon uh, adequately adequately wrote and directed the film and got the most out of their uh, limited budget. The the killer alien robot towards the end is actually pretty cool. And the plot, which I had completely forgotten, the plot is just the most dangerous game, except mm. that it involves escaped prisoners from a convict ship wearing fur bikinis who <laughs> crash land on a desert planet. It's a good plot. You know, it's worth rehashing. Oh no! Any story worth telling is worth telling again, uh, oh, yeah. as uh, as Robin Laws said. Uh, oh, but this is something that I did discover though: uh, is that apparently, so uh, this was uh, you know released by Charles Band's company uh, and uh, you know Full Moon Entertainment. But it turns out, so it came out in '87, uh, uh, and in 1992. Jesse Helms mentioned this movie by name while giving a speech uh, in favor of censorship legislation that would have blocked all quote-unquote indecent programming from cable television unless you specifically wrote to your cable company to opt out. <laughs> wow. And what year was this? Uh, th that would have been, that incident would have been in 1992. Oh my God, that's great! Yeah, so so for for those of you who don't know Jesse Helms, imagine the worst like what what's the worst racist conservative senator from North Carolina you could imagine? Fifteen percent worse than what you're imagining. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with those odds. <laughs> <laughs> Especially these days. Uh. <laughs> oh, it was the 90s, my friend. It was the oh. 90s. Those were the days, or they weren't. Um. <laughs> okay, yeah, we, we need to totally rewrite that song to be to be referencing the 90s. The Simpsons did it for the 70s. Yeah, they did, and they did I, a damn good job. I can't see why we can't do it again. That's our homework, I guess. Speaking Next of time. The Simpsons, every time I use Disney Plus, I'm bothered by the image they use to advertise The Simpsons, which is The Simpsons on a swing, smiling. Yeah, that's odd. It's very it, odd. I mean, when you think of now Disney owns The Simpsons, I mean, I guess that, that image kind of works in that context. But it's, you know, The Simpsons, I think, is renewed at least for another few years. And, uh, oh, yeah. well, I also what, I mean, like the, the, the layers of irony is like, it's so hilarious that of all the different companies like that the Simpsons went from Fox to Disney and like how much the Simpsons ripped on Disney over the years. It's like, yes. Yeah. I mean, we I don't still, even have to point that out. Like it's I, just still love that episode where, where Marge gets really into fitness and self-defense because she's mugged by a guy wearing a goofy with baseball a, yeah. cap. <laughs> I, I was thinking of uh, the, the Mary Poppins sort of spoof with Sherry oh, Bobbins. Sherry Bobbins, yeah. An original creation, like yeah. uh, like Monald Muck or Ricky Rouse. Yeah. <laughs> I just love how she's sucked into the turbine in the jet. It's like, oh, I'm sure we'll be seeing her again. <laughs> <laughs> I just do the musical number, If You Do a Half-Assed Job, which is such a, a Homer Sim a Simpsons kind of mantra. Oh, yeah. In, in general. And uh, yeah, it'll... 
I'm not quite sure, you know, that uh, Disney is, is renaming 20th Century Fox just 20th Century Pictures or whatever it is, is, is kind of a shame. And maybe they'll eventually the name of Fox won't be the name of that of those channels. I, I have no idea. They just, as part of the acquisition, they just put um, the FX programming is, is airing uh, sort of the day after it airs on cable on Hulu, which I think that makes sense because Hulu is yeah. more, tends to be more well, adult I programming. Like but... so many aspects, like the Disney bubbles burst in so many ways with the live action remakes and stuff like that. With, um, I mean, this past year we had, what, Aladdin, Lion King. Oh, it was Dumbo. Yeah, Dumbo. Uh, and I, mean, and I just like to say, there's nothing live action about the Lion King. That is CGI through. Didn't through. he get a Golden Globe right. nomination for best animated feature? I mean, I think it's insane. Like, if you want to be technical, you could call a lot of like the Marvel and DC superhero movies animated features oh, yeah. with how much CG is in them. We're probably you know animated features. If you're gonna, yeah, I think it's like if eighty percent of the footage is animated, then it's it's an it's an animated feature. Yeah. It... I guess we like, do. We have time to do one more. What you're watching, and we can close I out. I don't see why not. Okay, why? I, I, you know, with the, the self quarantining and all that, watching more, uh, more things on TV, which is always fun. I watched Frozen Two, the other night. I did yeah. not really like Frozen One, but I liked Frozen Two even less. Um, it, it doesn't seem again. It's this the same way I felt about uh, Wreck It Ralph uh, Two. Wreck It Ralph breaks the internet, in that. You have these characters that there's something to them. You have a sequel, but there's not an, quite enough story there for a movie, so it just feels really elongated. Cool. Uh, yeah, it seemed very unnecessary. Yeah, it seemed unnecessary. Both of those movies, are, but Frozen 2 in particular, I think seemed really unnecessary. didn't really... had less musical numbers, which always kind of disappoints me. I, those are some of my favorite parts of the Disney shows. And uh, I, think it's an, I think it's smart that Disney released that on Disney Plus early, and, and you're seeing stuff like Star Wars being released uh on on home video streaming early and uh before the show uh, alex thrasher and i were talking about how universal and some other studios are uh having movies available day and date with streaming or pretty damn close to it because yeah. a lot of movie theater chains like regal cinemas is closing down their theaters temporarily oh uh, yeah no, this whole um this whole that's why i'm i'm hanging out in columbia county right now because i'm at my girlfriend's place because uh you know, the, the, the promised lands of Pittsfield. So kind of holding out doubt here. And also, you know, I got laid off, so. Oh, no. Well, I mean, yeah, with the restaurant and industry, it's... that's ugh, hard. Oh, and that, that's my dog barking. Hello, and... Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like but, uh... it either, clearly. But it's, uh, yeah. So on that happy note. Um, yes. Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Oh, God. I mean, aside from a slave girls from beyond infinity. So I've been, <laughs> I've been going through, so I know I, I, we talked before about how I was watching the complete, uh, super sentai, uh, car ranger back when we yes. were reviewing the power rangers films. Well, I finally got through that entire series, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it, but I also, you know, fully aware that it's a special case and that it's meant to be humorous and self-referential. And it was sort of a special version of the show for its 20th anniversary. So I've been going through and basically I've been watching the first episode of every Super Sentai series that is available to me. Nice. And, you know, seeing if any of them speak to me, I might, I might stick with them, but it's been, it's been really fun. Yeah. To check that out. Um, something else that I've been, that's, totally batshit crazy was um have you ever heard of the seventh curse 
No. Yeah, I've heard of it. I uh, don't think this, I've seen it. This movie is fucking crackers. It is just off every rocker. It starts like a John Woo movie. Like a pre-handover Hong Kong era, like hostage crisis, shoot him up. And then it turns into this, like... It's like if you took Indiana Jones, Rambo, um, and uh, I guess like Cronenberg and, and threw him in a blender and just put him in. And there's like some xenomorph references in there, too. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how fucking off the charts this movie is. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. You just have to watch it. It's called The Seventh Curse. It's got uh, Chow on fat and a lot of other luminaries of like the Hong Kong cinema scene from that period. It's. Like it, it's stupid and it's incredible. It's 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 incredible. It's it's crazy. Oh, I will say this: of of all the Super Sentai things I've been watching, the first episode of so far, uh, Seiju Sentai Gingaman, which was repackaged and released in the United States, I believe, is Power Rangers Lost Galaxy. That's the one that's resonating with me the most. That I'm probably going to try to watch all the way through. It's a uh, forest people with magical swords versus a legion of space pirates. No shit, that sounds amazing. So when you say forest people, is one of them part tree, or they do they wear fuzzy little hats? Well, their leader is a magic talking tree, but no, like they're all people who live in this magical forest in Japan that's isolated from the outside world. But when the space pirates get released. Uh, they leave their hiding in the forest to fight the space pirates. Damn. That sounds amazing. It's okay. The main the main villain is this guy called Captain Zahab, who's like a space pirate <laughs> made out of pirate ships. <laughs> and everyone has a weird sort of nautical theme. Yeah. <clears throat> that sounds awesome. I like how it's Zahab, you know, Ahab with a Z. Oh, yeah, like, most of their names have some sort of, like, double meaning, like, uh, oh, what is it, the, uh, oh, a steerswoman, uh, Shalinda, she is, like, her armor is literally made of stylized seashells, so. <laughs> That's awesome. So, right. she shields seashells. <laughs> With the Sentai. Yeah. <laughs> sentai shield seashells. Down by the seashore. <laughs> a joke is always funnier if you mangle it the first time and then mangle it oh, slightly yeah. less the second time. It's, a joke's even better if you try to explain what it means. Um, okay, that, That's the sequel cast promise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how about that? Okay, so on that note, next week on uh, sequel cast 2, we'll be talking about the third film in the Quintet of Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Proxy War. It's the only one that doesn't have more than two titles, so promise. Hmm. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, uh, hopefully, there's a character called Proxy in it. Maybe. If Maybe. not, we'll take it up. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT Thresher. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And you can and... follow me on Twitter at Crab Nebula1914. Very good. So for uh, sequel cast two, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Yep. And this is Alex. Sane. Arigato? Arigato. Yes, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> I was about to say something about brothels, but I think Arigato is the way to go. Gozaramasu. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you're uh, in this time of coronavirus, if you're feeling sick, a... Uh, a cup of chicken brothel will do you good. 
I'll do with my <laughs> Bota box. Oh, um, <laughs> I'll just wipe all good. factory out. Thank you.